This one an international dub In the cloud of sound found above the ground Fly through the air like a pure white dove Cause I represent show Europe love Can't see me? Look high, I'm up there Where? Just sweet Libra come there Yeah, I'm up there, free as air Air's what I wear up there, you can find me This one an international dub In the cloud of sound found above the ground Fly through the air like pure white dove Cause we represent show Europe love You can see us look high, we're up there Where? Some Libra come there, yeah. We're up there, free as air. Air we are, we're up there. You can find us. Hi, everybody. We are back with our episode on the element of air and its appearance and manifestation in esoteric tarot. Welcome back. This is going to be an intense one, I think, as all of the air episodes tend to be. We will be talking about, as usual, the elemental major of air which would be the fool, the three zodiacal majors of air, meaning the justice or adjustment card, the star, and the lovers. We could also, I suppose, be talking about the magician for Mercury being the most probably airy of planets. Mm. There's an argument for it. Yeah, there's an argument for it. Uh, Jupiter sometimes is air, too, Yes, you know, even though, yeah. Yeah, air or fire. I always count them as air just because there's so much fire already. <laughs> but yeah. it's not a reason. I, yeah. <laughs> He's definitely a sky god, you know, Zeus, sky god, airy expansiveness kind of exactly. thing. And then we'll be talking about the Rider Waite Knights or Thoth Princes, who are representing the airy part of the courts. And of course, the remainder of the sword courts, the king or knight of swords, the queen of swords, the knighter prince of swords, and the pager princess of swords. And all the swords minors. <laughs> oh, yes. And uh, not to mention <laughs> the, <laughs> the ace through 10 of swords. Thank you. <laughs> so the uh, elemental qualities of air are warm and moist or hot and wet. Sometimes fire and water are considered sort of the extreme ends. And then with, with, um, air and earth, sometimes some of the philosophers walk it back a little bit. So instead of being hot and wet, sometimes they describe air as moist and warm, like a little bit more temperate. It shares its polarity, its upward motion with fire because of heat. And therefore those two, you know, have complementary dignity if you use elemental dignity in readings. Both considered active or yang. And like water, obviously shares that quality of moistness or wetness, which makes some kind of neutral indignity when you consider them together. Now, then there's that other, uh, what Plato described, those two other qualities. Well, there's three qualities, actually. There's brightness versus darkness. There's thinness versus denseness and motion versus stillness, I guess. So air is, it has thinness and motion in the same way that fire does, but uh, but not brightness. So interestingly enough, um, Plato considers air dark. Yeah, it's you know, I think I read something somewhere and three of the four were considered dark. Like fire was the only one that was bright. Yes. Was weird. Yes, it is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Who can say? I thought it would, you know, be more evenly divided, but no. Yes. So in general, we associate air with the quality of knowledge or the power of the Sphinx to know. So fire was to will, water was to dare, air is to know. 
And Earth, of course, is to keep silent. So I tend to describe stories of air as stories of the quest for knowledge and its price, which kind of makes sense when you consider that the fool, elemental air, is defined by his, you know, lack of knowledge. <laughs> right. his, his folly, his complete absence of reason. <laughs> Tabula rasa. <laughs> I like to think of the suit of swords as kind of, if you look at Rider-Waite-Smith from the two to the ten of swords, there's this theme of the eyes being kind of shut or covered or looking away, with maybe the exception of the five of swords, and uh, and this idea that, you know, each of them has this relationship with wanting to know more, wanting to see more, you know, and, and the struggles that go with that. And in fact, the central card of the suit would be science, which you know, Lord of Science, which just means to know, scurry, to know. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because air, there's the theory that air is the product of fire and water. You know, yes. it's the, um, the sun in the triad, you know, father, mother, mm -hmm. son, daughter of the divine name. And when you mix fire and water, supposedly you get air. And then you see in a major theme of the air cards, especially the, you know, the swords minors is dualities, you know, yes. how knowledge splits things into black and white and mm -hmm. all sorts of themes of duality, like conjunction and separation. And this creates conflict. Yeah. And the same idea that uh, all air signs are considered Libra, Aquarius, Gemini, plus Virgo. They're considered human signs. But uh, but there is the fact that the three constellations, the scales, the water bearer, and the twins are the, you know, are the human or impersonal ones. They're not animals. Right. I think I balance and I know. The most abstract of the signs, really, which is fitting. Uh, there's, it's also worth kind of noting while we're talking about it, the weird relationship and parallels between water and air, not just because of the water bearer, but, you know, a lot of the metaphors we use for air and water are the same. There are currents, you know, there are streams in both cases. There's uh, the Space naval ships. <laughs> exactly. Naval and aviation metaphors are the same. There's a sort of a freedom of motion that goes with both. And um, yeah, I think that's one of the overall qualities of the air element is movement and motion. Yeah, absolutely. The most mobile of the four. Yeah. And then there's the relationship of air and earth, you know, which kind of have their own kind of mythic archetypal pairing. You know, there's there's yeah, always the that. whole heaven and earth, the uh, sky and mm -hmm. the sky goddess. You know, Gaia birthed Uranus and then mm -hmm. became his wife too. <laughs> you know, <that> <laughs> In the way of heaven these and earth relationship. <laughs> yeah, so so air is interesting because it really is. It has a relationship to each of the other elements and is generally considered kind of a connector property. Yeah, it's a mediator. Definitely it is. Air. It's it is. Ultimate a, mediator. It's in everything. Right. And there's also something that is, I think, as I was sort of doing the prep for this episode, there's something that's fundamentally more human about air, you know, kind of like we were talking with the constellations, but there's something very human about air as a sort of intellectual property, as a sort of like, 
the right, freedom that's what to... divides us from the animals is that we have supposedly the power of reason. The... <laughs> yes, or the, <laughs> the, the mind itself with all its flaws and weaknesses and strengths. There's something about the ability to ideate and imagine that goes with air and is just different, that sense of free will. Yeah, so that's, I think maybe that's what makes air so interesting and challenging to talk about because it is different from the others. And it is, is associated also with that sort of repatterning of the world through the act of the mind, I think, you know, in the sense that we associate it with the dagger of the magician or Yetzira or the backstage of reality, all of these things. All right, I guess we should start by talking about the majors a bit justice or adjustment and the star and the lovers. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of going in rather than numerical order and cardinal fixed mutable order just (laughs) because. Yeah. Yeah. That's one way to do it. Or there's seasonal order. Or seasonal order. Exactly. I like to think about in cardinal fixed mutable order because it creates kind of a story where justice represents learning the rules by which one has to operate and live and then and then the star is how you solve problems you know either by using those rules or thinking outside of them going around them and then the lovers as how you pay the price <laughs> for for what you did anyway, i yeah. also like thinking about it in the seasonal order too as mm-hmm. like you know gemini coming first in that initial division of things into mm-hmm. polarity and then, you know, Aquarius coming last and being like the ultimate goal, that far sighted, you know, goal of, of pure knowledge. And then in mm-hmm. between you have Libra, the balance between the two. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. Kind of going from near to far with that story. I, I mean, I often think associate my own sort of sequence of rules and problem solving and paying the price with the the Eden story. It's sort of like, you know, which is also associated with the lovers, of course, but that idea of... And also (laughs) with the the story of the uh, judgment of Paris. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's another good one for the uh, lovers (laughs) and paying the price. (laughs) Paying the price big time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. That idea that, you know... Um, you have to commit at some point, and the commitment itself is is going to cause a series of things to be set in motion, most likely tragic, because <laughs> <Right. laughs> we're talking about air. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, you know, there's so many story archetypes where it starts out, okay, here's this one thing you can't do, <laughs> and now you're going to do it, and now yeah. we're going to see what happens. <laughs> there's a great poem I teach my students in the writing about the census class, and it has a reference to the story of Bluebeard. You know that one? Yep. yep. And it's like, it, oh, I've been teaching- that door, whatever you do. <laughs> just not that one door. And I have been teaching that class for six or seven years now, and no one has ever heard of it. I don't know what's up. Do people really? not read? Yeah, people do people not read fairy tales fairy anymore? Tale? anymore they're too grim i guess maybe they're too literally grim yeah yeah i mean they are very very bloody but you know but to me that's also a great story of like knowledge and its price yeah (laughs) i think there's it's interesting that both in justice slash adjustment and the lovers we have that theme of the sword you know the sword in the in the lover sense because it's associated with letter sign um which means sword in hebrew and the justice 
card, of course, bearing the sword. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, you can say that the element of air, its story begins and ends with the sword. And we talked a lot in the Ace of Swords about how, you know, it's kind of what you were saying about duality and division, that there's always two sides. A sword cuts both for good and for bad. It is invoked force as opposed to natural. So there's an always an element of deliberateness about it. Choice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And having to give something up by preserving something, you destroy something. A, one twin must die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk constellations now before we forget, or do you? Yeah, want- sure. Well, yeah. Might as well. It's a good, good yeah. segue into them. Um, so for the the constellations for the air decans for Gemini, uh, decan one we have Orion the hunter. For decan two we have Canis Major, and for decan three Canis Minor. Mm. For Libra decan one we have Butes the plowman. And for Deccan 2, we have Corona and Crux, the northern crown and the southern crown. And for Deccan 3, we have Centaurus, which is kind of surprising because uh, you, you think of that as more Sagittarius. Yeah. Um, and then for Aquarius, Deccan 1, Pisces Australis, the southern fish, which that makes sense. Uh, Deccan 2, Cygnus the swan. And Deccan 3, Pegasus, the flying horse. Mm, so you have all of this sort of aerial animals, airborne yeah. animals at the end there. Yeah, yeah, at the end. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, if we talk about those those nine decans of air, they definitely do seem to trace a narrative arc from the two to the ten of sorts um, with, uh, with that balance point of, of science in the middle. You know, I often see that two, three, and four of swords as representing kind of crossroads metaphors, that impasse that you arrive at, at the two of swords where you have to decide, and then the three of swords being the right, crisis. the initial duality. <laughs> exactly. The the three of swords being the crisis of needing to, you know, commit to whatever it is you do, and then the four of swords, that temporary compromise that you reach when uh, you realize that, that you're going to have to go forward even if you don't want to truce or rest from strife. Yeah, I think the Four of Swords is one of the most important swords cards in a sense. You think of the Six of Swords as the best of sword cards, and in a sense Mm -hmm. it it kind of is, obviously Mm -hmm. being there in the middle. But the Four of Swords to me is really important because it shows a way to kind of disengage from the conflict aspect of swords and, you know, and to really expand the mind to that card. To me, that card has a lot to do with the power of meditation and and detachment and seeing things clearly through, you know, the the expansiveness of Jupiter. Oh, 1000%. When I was writing 36 Secrets, and you probably are experiencing this and working with the Deccan uh, imagery as well, it's hard to reconcile the Deccan imagery with that card, because in that card, Mm -hmm. it's very much like, you know, there's all of this imagery of hunting and ecstasy and sort of brawling and there's there's a real kind of violence to it oh yeah there's evil works and sodomy and adultery and singing and you know man quote-unquote riding a quote-unquote donkey with a quote-unquote wolf in front of him yes (laughs) Uh, oh a violent man holding a bow and before him a naked man and also another man holding bread in one hand 
wicked lust singing sports and gluttony anyway so um, what i what i started to think about the four of swords is austin uses that metaphor of the gyroscope i use the metaphor of the eye of the storm the widening gyre this idea that there's this sort of swirling of apocalyptic images and energy all around and then there's this still point at the center that's exactly the goal right? of meditation is to sit in that exactly point and notice the mind's tendency toward chaos and constant movement. It is that finding the gnosis, you know, amidst that madness. And and it, there are different ways to achieve it, meditation being maybe the most significant and important one. But also there's ecstatic gnosis, you know, the sort of trance mm-hmm. state that people get in by drumming or through orgasm or through whatever sort of, you know, frenzied methodology they go too. So there's ecstatic gnosis and there's inhibitory <clears throat> gnosis. And I sort of think that this card, the Four of Swords, can refer to both. It's fascinating, really, to think about that juxtaposition of the wild and frenetic with the still point in the center that is utterly reflected, I think, in the Rider-Waite-Smith imagery, too, with the still person, but with the right. brilliant lighted window in the corner. Yeah, they found their their balance, their inner balance. Right, you know, as well as that rose at the center of the Thoth card as well, which is also something that you see graphically represented in the Marseille Four of Swords, that sort of little flower in the center. Yeah, that's almost like the focus point of the mind. Like in meditation, Mm -hmm. you pick a focal point and oftentimes it's the breath. I mean, how more airy is that? (laughs) Right, exactly. That's a great point. Absolutely. Because uh, you always have your breath. Uh, right. You can else. always return to the breath. You know, you find yourself distracted. You you start thinking your thoughts and then you're like, oh, geez, I suck. I'm supposed to be meditating. And you go back to the breath. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not to mention that practice of box breathing, the fourfold breath, you know, yeah. um, holding for four counts, which is uh, something that a lot of people practice. Uh, and then the five, six and seven, you know, again, we have that sort of pivot around the six which mm. the card of science, um, the heart of the quest for knowledge. I was thinking about how interesting it is, as I said before, how that, that power to know is literally what science means. Mm. But how if you think about it in the Earth context, the power to keep silent is connected with success, <laughs> you know, in the middle. And mm. I was kind of thinking about what that might mean. But what is interesting about that five, six, and seven sequence, I think, I kind of think of the six is that navigational compass, whereas the five is the risk you undertake in setting out in any journey, and the seven is the resourcefulness you have to have to adapt as you go. Yeah, uh, the, the changeability of the moon in that decan. Exactly. When you're up against, you know, futilities, having to be adaptable. Having plan B. It's all plan B. <laughs> all the time it's all side hustle (laughs) oh gosh yeah and then finally there's you know our everybody's favorite eight nine and ten of swords you know that paralysis anxiety depression (laughs) sequence yeah Yeah. that's a rough one it is and i think though that using that metaphor of kind of having to make a choice out of abundant options is the one that 
kind of works best for yeah. people understanding that, like the Eight yep. of Swords being that Deccan where everything divides into ones and zeros and the mind boggles at the diversity, the kind of speciation. How many choices there are, yeah. Exactly, exactly, paralyzed by choice. And then the Nine sort of like, oh no, I can't possibly, <laughs> I can't possibly right. pick one. I can't possibly choose. Exactly, and the sort of the like... The Ten is like, F it, I just, I just chose, it's over. <laughs> exactly, and living with it. That moment of where everything collapses, literally collapses sometimes, you know, into um, and sort of like a good analogy for the eight, nine and ten of swords is the uncertainty principle, you know, or Schrodinger's cat where you yeah. try to I keep things uncertain. <laughs> yes, exactly. I just opened the box and now we know. And the cat is dead. And it is a great <laughs> metaphor for the for the idea that to know is to die at some level, right? You know, knowledge equals death. Knowledge equals power, but knowledge also equals death, which is, you know, in all the myths of air, something we see repeatedly. Yeah, um, it's interesting how air does, you know, there's that polarity again, I guess, life and death. It has that quality, you know, the breath of life, the spiritus, the, you know, and, and then it yeah. also has that finality of the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah, and if we just go through the, the hermetic void. titles <laughs> of, of all the, of those nine minors, we have peace, sorrow, truce, defeat, science, futility, interference, cruelty, and ruin. <laughs> and going from, from peace the to, end. to ruin. <laughs> yeah, it really is interesting the way that those possibilities progressively collapse over the course of the suit. And I, I never can quite get enough of it because it's really so brilliantly captured, says so much about the human dilemma. <laughs> I guess we should talk about the airy part of other elements, as in the uh, the court cards, the knights or princes. So as they are airy, I guess we talk about the metaphysics of air, the fact that it is penetrating, the fact that it is mobile, and so are yes, the princes. Definitely both in rider weight and in thought, the knights or princes are mobile. <laughs> yeah, they all have chariots of some sort or, or horses. <laughs> exactly. With the sort of sort of minor exception of the Prince of Discs, they are on the move. You know, I often see them in readings. He's moving as, just more slowly. Yeah, he's <laughs> moving in place. <laughs> you know, that's funny. I got the Knight of Pentacles for the outcome of the 2020 election. And it was like, Biden's moving, but he's staying in D.C. <laughs> I often see in readings that the, the Knights or Princes represent when the client is literally sometimes moving or going to another job or leaving a relationship or whatever or entering one on the move yeah there's a restlessness and and also we've talked in the past about there's that sort of traveling between the extremes of the decans because it's between the five and the six right the um as the yeah. sort of yeah main... the two extremes of uh, every prince has those two decans that are always exact opposites, very, mm -hmm. very dual. Yes, and having to resolve that. And and the one thing that they're not patient with is the four, <laughs> is the stasis. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, to understand a knight is to understand that motion from the cardinal decans to the fixed ones, from the fours to the fives and the sixes. You know, we should maybe talk particularly about the prince or knight of swords because he's heir of heir, that sort of 
figure of just constant motion and restlessness and even aggressiveness. Right. Yeah. In, in the Thoth, he's literally pulled in opposite directions by uh, two arch phase flitting around. That's right. They, they kind of look like mini me's and he's just being torn in different directions. My son, who is, I've talked about this in the past, who is uh, his son in the Aquarius One Deccan, has always been an embodiment of the Prince of Swords for me, literally because he's a fencer, literally because he cannot stop talking, <laughs> you know, and literally because he just will not settle down. Yeah. It's, is it your moon in, no, it's not your moon in uh, Which one? Deccan. Five or six? In five, in five. I have rising in five and moon in rising six. Rising in five, moon in six. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I knew it was, it was one or the other. And then I've got the seven for the moon. Yeah. 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 So between us, we, we cover it all. We, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in general, that sort of, um, in general with sword courts, you know, the way the suit of, the way the element of air plays out in the courts, I think, it lends itself to a great deal of analysis, a great deal of, you know, rational discussion, but also intemperate discussion, argument, debate. Oh, for sort sure, of, conflict. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Both BS and intolerance for BS. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes there's, I think there's a tendency in that uh, Prince of Swords to take the opposite point of view on purpose, just yeah. to be like devil's advocate, kind of like. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I've noticed that that tendency, no matter what you say, they're almost bound to, to sit, take the opposite point of view just because you took that side. Yeah, just because, because why not, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. why ever not? One interesting thing about the suit of swords is, you know how planets kind of, we have seven planets, we have nine decans pursuit, and uh, some of the planets end up doubling up. So you have you have two lunar ones in in the suit of air you've got the two of swords and you've got the seven of swords and you also have two uh jupiterian ones you've got the four of swords mm -hmm. and the eight of swords so that's kind of interesting to think about just the sort of fluid motion and changeability of the moon um makes sense for swords yeah and the and the and the constant motion of the wheel too mm. you know, with with jupiter constant motion of thoughts and ideas Yes, never, ever settling down. You know, something I was thinking yeah. about in relation to the swords, just as a sort of side note, is you ever think about how influenced you are by, you know, the media and what you see yeah. and what you read without even being aware of it? Like these totally. thoughts are getting into your head. Oh, absolutely. It's a very swords thing for me. Yeah, it it absolutely is. And people would always say that, with the former president that the most influential person was the last one who was in the room with him. But I kind of feel like that too, you know, sort of like the last argument I hear is always the most persuasive. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And you think you, sometimes, or at least I've thought that I'm above that and I'm not going to be influenced by things, but then I catch myself. I'm like, oh yeah. oh yeah, I just totally got influenced by what I just read or whatever. The mind is super impressionable. Or you can think about that as being similar like with an earworm when you have a, uh, a tune stuck in your head. The mind just kind mm. of gets into these patterns and, and cycles around. I find media and advertising to be very much a swords thing. <laughs> it is. You know, just the stickiness. I don't know. To me, that seems very much and sort of 
that eight, nine, and ten of swords thing where, yeah, you know, where it kind Especially of circles the nine, around. You know, it, there's a lot mm-hmm. of messages out there that we take in that say we're not good enough and we have to buy something to solve that. <laughs> right, right. And then the cycle kind of perpetuates itself when you do. In terms of Kabbalah, I guess in terms of Tetragrammaton, we're talking about Vav, the um, right, the the sun or the prince or the uh, product of fire and water. The mediator between the king and the queen. Yes, you know, and that connection with the six, because Vav is numerically six, but also the six in the tree of life is like Grand Central, right, (laughs) of the tree of life. It's connected to everything. So Vav, the nail or the anchor. And it's also the five with its connection to the hierophant. That too, that too, that too. And the princes have the fives and the sixes, so that's kind of cool. That is kind of cool. But in general, six is considered, I think, a number of connection, not just because of the tree of life, but, you know, it's up and down and left and right and forward and back. It's all of those things connected together. And so I think it's like the first product of an even and an odd, too, you know? Yes, exactly. And uh, and then you have also the idea that the, you know, in, in Hebrew just means and. It's a conjunction. Right. You know, bringing together two things. I also learned something super interesting yesterday, which is that apparently the, um, the, the letter at the absolute center of the Torah is above. So, so they actually will make it oversized. Ah, The pin around which. Yeah. There's actually the word in the center of the Torah is gachon. And that is spelled, you know, gimel. Uh, chet, vav, nun. So it literally means belly, and in the center of it is the <laughs> is, mm, is, is the is navel. The nail. <laughs> yeah, is the navel, right, exactly, which I think is pretty fascinating. Another interesting thing I learned was that there's all these interesting like textual conventions in Hebrew, which I didn't know about. Besides making that vav oversized in the middle of the Torah, there's also a convention of making the vav in the word shalom, which is the O sound, broken. So, you know, so it's like there's this broken piece that needs to be brought back together mm, with the idea. Yeah. And there's also one more thing about that Truth. number, number six, that's associated with Vav, which is that, of course, you know, in Genesis, the idea is that humans were created on the sixth day. So there's something particularly human about that number six. And, you know, again, as you said, that combination of even and odd and this um, and this letter vav is really very interesting. And I guess we should also talk a little bit about Aleph because it's yeah. associated with this. With it's the really. Pool. Yeah, definitely with the with its association with breath, you know, um, and creation itself being associated with the word and the breath and life, the life breath. Actually, graphically, the Aleph is said to be a vav between two yods, <laughs> you know? Yep. There's sort yep. of like that cross piece in there that separates or connects them. You could say either, really. Yep. Right. A conjunction or a separation. There's that you know, duality again. Mm-hmm. There's the yod of, you know, of the divine on the upper one, and then the lower one being the sort of human reaching for it through the interface of the vav. In terms of the worlds we're talking about yeah that's now we're in yitzira the um the world of the chair's blueprint (laughs) yes that's uh lan milo duquette's model where atzilut was the idea of rest 
the inchoate sort of unformed idea of rest. Bria was the inventor world where the idea of a chair becomes manifest in the mind of the inventor. And then in Yetzira, it's the sort of speciation, all the possible blueprints for chairs that <laughs> that could possibly be. And there's something in Yetzira which has that sort of fractal quality, that ramification, that sort of branching out and diversification quality, all the different things that might be. We talked about Bria as being something from nothing, Yet Sira, therefore, is something from something. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's the interesting thing is is like it's about creation, air and Yetzira, but it's not the like fire is the original the original idea, whereas air is more of like the connecting of I of idea to reality. You know, it's that mm-hmm. that bridge between the idea of a chair and the manifestation of a chair. Yes, it's the sort of patterning right behind the reality that we experience. And I have down here a quote, and I I can't actually remember if this is from from Golden Dawn or from Savor Yetzira or what, but describing Yetzira as the sudden and fleeting patterns behind matter. You have to be able to think of something and, you know, and plan it for it to exist. Without imagination, there is no creation, I guess. You know, I often talk about how when we travel up the tree from Malkut to Yesod or from Asiya back up to Yetzira, that it's a way of resetting the patterns, you know, either going back into that backstage for divination purposes to get information so you can see the pattern or by rewriting the pattern in magic. Right. The magic. That's the magic. Exactly. Resetting the semiotic web is another way to think of it. Before we go into correspondences, including color, I just want to throw in this quote from Agrippa. Agrippa describes air as a vital spirit passing through all beings, giving life and subsistence to all things, binding, moving, filling. It receives into itself as if it were a divine looking glass, the species of all things, as also of all manner of speeches, and retains them, entering Mm. into bodies through their pores, makes an impression upon them, and affords matter for diverse strange dreams." and divination (laughs) so there's like yeah it's nice it's like it uses the metaphor of the the, of reflection of the looking glass that's very (laughs) yisod very very and that sort of like uh that penetration in all things uh it's the medium or the glue he also calls it the resounding spirit of the world's instrument and i always love reading medieval thinkers because they they always look for the mechanics of things you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like yeah, he's like yeah. Griff is like if you walk past a graveyard and you get a creepy feeling that's because these particles of polluted air are entering into your body <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know they kind of ruin things in a way by like saying the body's a machine and <laughs> oh yeah i guess that's just where they were at the time but one thing that's interesting is just looking at the color scales, which you know better than I do, but those those colors of the print scale, they, they all seem to have a quality of light inside them, don't they? Yeah, it is interesting. If you start with the colors of the fool, he's got the, the 
light pale yellow, which is a mixture of white, which is probably the white of Keter, you know, and, mm-hmm. and yellow, the, the gold of the, the sun. And mm-hmm. then he's got the pale blue of the sky and the emerald green with flecks of gold and, you know, down here on Earth. They're both, yeah. it's, it's an interesting mix of like sky and earth colors in the fool and light, yeah. just light itself. Yeah, that's true. And then if you look through the print scales of the majors, there's also a kind of, um, you know, and in the minors as well, there's, there's yeah. constantly words that say brilliant or bright or dark. You know, there's qualifiers. There's always, a, uh, I mean, I realize they're just Windsor and Newton colors, but at the same time, it's interesting that each one has to have a sense of just where it stands on that quality right. of transparency or, you know, how much light it's letting through. Translucency. Yeah, in, in the eighth to ten, it it's um, white brilliance, blue pearl gray like mother of pearl, dark mm-hmm. brown, deep purple, bright scarlet, rich salmon, bright yellow green, red russet, very dark purple. And then finally, we have that citrine olive russet in black, but flecked with gold. So that's the difference between Bria and Yetzira. There's flecks of gold. Yep. Yeah. And then, in you know, if you're in the ace and the quartz, it's just pretty much all the elemental colors of air. So it's the blue and yellow mainly and white. Yes. Those bright sky colors. Yeah. The yellow of the sun in the blue sky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> white clouds kind of. Yeah. And some green because, you know, yellow and blue makes green. So there you go. Those are the colors of the courts. Yeah. Oh, should we talk myths before we do more correspondences? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, speaking of, of blue and yellow, it's, you know, all the sky gods. Right. So, yeah. So sky gods. Obviously, the original sky god would be Uranus, Gaia's son and consort. Then, you know, Zeus and Shiva. Vayu is a Hindu mm-hmm. uh, god of air or breath. He was depicted as riding a gazelle. There's that idea of motion and carrying a fluttering flag. All the storm god, any god that was a storm god or a wind god, you know, Aeolus, the god of the winds. Um, probably all the winds apply, but especially the eastern wind, which is Eurus. Yes, um, you know, that's so funny. I, I once did some dirty work, and I didn't really know anything about the winds, but I ended up seeing this, you know, this godlike figure, and I saw the words, I am El Eurus. Nino. <laughs> well, I saw the Spanish word. Spanish means the Nino. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the word Eurus, you know, like on a license plate, and I thought, that means wide. Why does, in Greek, I knew it meant wide, but why am I seeing this thing that means wide? And in the vision, this, this god figure sort of licked his finger and held it up to the wind, and, you know, he was actually facing from the east. So when I looked it up afterwards, I realized I had had like a visitation from the east wind, and I was absolutely cool floored because i had no idea what was going on with that but uh, but yeah and east in general is associated with air uh so but especially the east wind as you were saying um knowledge gods and i would also say yeah knowledge gods for sure and i would also say like in the thalamic pantheon you can't go wrong if you assign new it or yes, new I was gonna as say that. you know yeah. the sky literally the sky goddess but it's interesting because how the Thalamic pantheon, they're really kind of interchangeable in many ways. Like you think of Horus as a fire god, but I mean, he's a hawk. Yes, air, yes, yes. you know, and, and, and I also even see elements of air in Hadid. 
too. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how they're very fluid like that. But That's definitely for the firmament and the, the idea of the firmament in the sky, I would say uh, knew it. And uh, also for the fool, you could say uh, probably Horpakrat, yeah. the passive aspect of the, the fool would be yeah. an air god, I think. But he's also kind of got some earth in there, too, which is interesting with his silence. Well, I think in, in general speech and silence gods, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hermes exactly. for sure. Um, yeah. You yep. know, all hermetic manifestations, the Mercury, but also Prometheus as a knowledge god. You know? Right. Bringing the fire from heaven. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I guess would be the knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And besides the, in terms of sort of stories, besides the Eden myth, which I always like to, t- with the element of air, I also love to use the uh, myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, even though, you know, as an underworld myth, you would think it was sort of um, earth-like, but it's also about wanting to sing your way you know, into a bargain and sing your way in and out of it and to make a deal. And then this rule about not looking, right? (laughs) That comes in the eight, nine, and 10 swords. Do this one thing for me. Don't look as you're coming up. And then, of course, he looks and therefore 10 of swords. Curiosity killed the cat. Exactly. (laughs) I think that's just just utterly poignant. In the Golden Dawn, we associate uh, Raphael, with the direction of east and there's a there's some indication that yeah in the in the banishing ritual yeah yeah in the banishing ritual and uh for that reason the the lover's card that's said to be Raphael with his red and green hair sort of just in yellow and purple i think you're supposed to see him as as yellow and purple you know as always with our angelic correspondence there's just him no. as just a column of yellow light <laughs> it's yes. easier Let's see, we said east as far as the banishing ritual correspondences and, and general sort of Western Wiccan correspondences. East, you know, sunrise, dawn, spring, sense of smell. Sanguine temperament. Smell makes sense because yeah. literally air going up your nose. Literally air. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes hearing hearing is literally air waves. Yep. Vibration, yeah. Yeah. And oh, and that sort of always reminds me of that relationship of fool and adjustment the uh the air and the shaping of the air and that being mm. sort of the musical association of adjustment in that way in the sylphs <laughs> the sylphs right what even is a sylph right it's, well, i guess it's a fairy like creature it's an air elemental and um i read somewhere that it comes from the word S-I-L-P-H-E. I don't know if that's pronounced sylphe, sylph, but it's Latin for winged insect. So I imagine oh, they do look okay. like little winged fairies or something. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, they can appear however they want to appear, obviously. Right, <laughs> right. So the the metals of air, uh, they're not very metally at all, but, you know, the clear ones like quartz, celestite, which is sky-colored, um, mixed ones, mercurial ones like mercury and tin and aluminum and Tur- I agate. read turquoise for sky turquoise, color, which yeah. I always associated turquoise with Uranus for some reason. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot which of sense. Which is Aquarius. So, mm-hmm. oh, uh, at the aspen tree, you know the one that yeah. its leaves like wiggle and tremble when you look yes. at it. It looks like it's waving at you in the little slightest breeze. I love that. Yes. In fact, you know, trees generally, all the ones that have silvery or trembling foliage or the ones that grow in the mountains. also, Or any plant whose seeds are scattered by the air. Yes. And there's also that idea that um, the flower part of a plant is associated with air in the same way that the roots are associated with the earth. 
the seed is associated with the fire and uh, and the, the leaves or the juicy parts are associated with water. So flowers are air. Airy creatures, birds, obviously, needless to say. Um, yes, all kinds of birds. <laughs> all kinds of birds. <laughs> Those who must live birds in the air. And feathers <laughs> and butterflies. In terms of like the tetramorph, you know, there's there's this idea, sometimes the eagle, sometimes the man, you know, if we look at the cherubic beasts, it's the man, again, right. that sort of association with the human um, versus the bull for earth and the uh, the eagle for for Scorpio <clears throat> as the highest form of Scorpio and the lion as the, as the form of fire, uh, Leo. Uh, the weapon would be the athame or the incense or the sword or the um, fan the, the yes or the fan yeah. air the motion of the air the fan yeah and i think you mentioned the sanguine temperament um yeah. the, the blood dagger, humor yeah. yeah yeah cheerful and amiable temperament yeah it's, the sanguine temperament that's you know the seems blood like the best the body, <laughs> the movement you know the blood is all these rivers of motion in the body even right. when you're still you're moving <laughs> yeah that's true uh, of the faculties of humans, it's reason as opposed to uh, understanding imagination and the senses, which go with the other ones. Uh, the crown or throat and throat and heart chakra sometimes are associated with um, with air. And I've seen the solar plexus chakra oh, that's sometimes interesting. there too. Yeah. Huh. I, mean, I, I mean, that's the part that rises with the breath maybe. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. And the throat obviously is the you know speaking and speech, mm-hmm. words, mm-hmm. swords and words, swords and words. Well, the <laughs> only other thing I have left, I think, is um, just like spiritual practices that I associate with air, mm-hmm. and you know, um, obviously we already talked about meditation. Yeah. But um, the one thing that I really associate with air that I do a lot of is chanting mantra Ooh. practice um yeah and i kind of think of that as an air air practice yeah and uh, actually one thing i was i've been thinking about lately a lot in terms of ritual is the notion that sometimes our sacrifice what we offer to the gods is our words is our praise and is and, our, and also one of the things that i was thinking about that kind of same topic is one of the things we offer is our time yeah our time is precious and if you were going to sit down and spend an hour in meditation or chanting or ritual of any type you are offering your time you are sacrificing your time could have used for something else and instead you chose to use it for that yes and you are mortal so your time has meaning (laughs) it's very valuable it it is it is (laughs) and the other thing is that like words and song these are the creations of the created right there's nothing that the gods need but we are their creations and the thing that we can offer that nobody else can is our own creations you know that which makes us similar to the gods and which pleases the gods because it's a reflection of them so the other um, kind of spiritual practices that I associate with the air element are when you do like ritual reading of sacred text. Yes. Um, that's something that I do sometimes and, and out loud, you know, as when I practice, I'll read like a passage from a sacred text out loud, really like focusing on it as a form of meditation. Um, some people do a lot of breath work and prana. I don't tend to do as much of that as I should. Um, sigils, I consider those as sort mm. of an air thing where you're, you're 
creating a, a, a words that you want a representation focus, and then you're breaking yeah. down the letters into something you know and um that's sort of an air thing and uh mm-hmm. you know song i i guess and, and and the other thing i was thinking about is kind of an air practice is the idea of laughter as banishment yes absolutely actually i think that there's something to be said for the idea of I've been thinking a lot about divination as a form of play, as a form of Oh, games. yeah, divination is the uh, magical it is. power. For, for oh, yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, as, as a, you know, as a hermetic art, the fact that it is undertaken in a spirit of play seems to me very aerial. Mm. And, and the arts of memory as well. Uh, oh, for sure. It's interesting because I often think about that because I do a lot of memorizing kind of just for, for fun to memorize Orphic <laughs> so hymns. Weird, <laughs> I know. <laughs> and it's like, and uh, when I, when I memorize an Orphic hymn, it's interesting because there's a, a part of the brain that kind of sections itself off to do that work. And your relationship between the meaning of the words changes, right? It's mm. like memorizing, it becomes a part of you in a way that the meaning can both become more accessible because all you're doing is talking and thinking about what you're saying, but also less accessible because it's just sounds. Yeah, it's you know? just focusing on the sound. It almost becomes like an earworm or something. You know? Yes, like, it really it, does. It really yeah. does. It reproduces itself. And that to me seems very much of the nature of air, the sort of like that that tension between sense and nonsense that, yeah. that occurs. I noticed that because I memorized some pretty long mantras mm-hmm. in my practice and what I try to do once I have it memorized is at the same time that I'm saying these foreign mm-hmm. sounds and words is to know the meaning of each word at the same time and try to hold that in my mind as a practice, which is tough to do sometimes. It's hard to do. I kind of go back and forth on that because sometimes I try to right. understand the meanings and sometimes I just try to sometimes feel you present. Just focus you on know? the sound and, and the flow. Yeah. Right. And right. that's like, they're two different things. That's okay, too. <laughs> right, 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 right. Okay, well, that's good. I think we've pretty much covered yeah, it. That's pretty good. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for coming on this wandering journey <laughs> through the realms of air with us uh, as we have spaced out and drifted and Talked. journeyed our way <laughs> through these currents and breezes. Uh, We will be back next time with the element of earth and we'll see you then.